Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach him, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for thou shalt be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand and gives the light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.
Uh, so a week ago Friday, uh, I was in North Carolina when I realized, oh, I might be getting sick. And by Saturday, my head became just a mucus factory. So kind of paint your own picture there. And I'm still trying to get over it. I'm still trying to clear my head and my throat. So you will excuse me if there is an occasional cough or throat clearing or if I need to blow my nose. Fortunately, the people on the internet won't ever hear that because of digital editing. So consider yourselves fortunate. The people in the room are going to have to put up with my very mucusy head. There's a lot of sickness going around right now. It was uh, kind of my turn last week. But I am so convinced of the sovereignty of God that whenever he makes me lay down, whenever he decides that it's not my time to talk, I'm anxious to find out what he's going to do through somebody else. And I enjoyed everything Steve had to say last week. I thought that was really good content. I appreciated it very much. And so clearly God decided that that needed to get said and that I needed to just shut up for a while. This morning, we're going to be returning to our study in Paul's two epistles to the church at Thessalonica. This morning, we'll be introducing 2 Thessalonians and hopefully getting through the first chapter. The first chapter of 2 Thessalonians is not long, and yet it is chock full of theological realities that are actually very helpful to us today. It's very practical, and I hope to draw some of that out. The book of 2 Thessalonians is a very short letter. The first and third chapters are kind of hello and goodbye. The second chapter is just so full of eschatological information that it has become one of the more controversial and argued about sections of the whole New Testament. I contend that if you understand Paul's greater theology, if you understand the whole corpus of Pauline writing, And if you understand what he has already written to the Thessalonians, it's not really that difficult to sort out chapter 2. But we will get to it next week. The entirety of 2 Thessalonians is just dripping, just chock full of God's sovereignty. And we're going to see that again right away. But in chapter 2, Paul is going to say things like, We should thank God always for you, brethren, because he chose you from the beginning for salvation. So regardless of how Calvinistic that may sound, it's exactly what Paul wrote, that the fact that there are saints in Thessalonica, he said, is a result of God's sovereignty in choosing them from the very beginning for salvation. But in that same context, then, he writes one of the more chilling sentences that you'll find anywhere in the Bible 
which is that God turns people over to a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned. Well, there's just no way to juxtapose those two statements and not see the absolute sovereignty of God, that it is God who decided who was going to be saved from the very beginning, and it is God who guaranteed the condemnation of those vessels of wrath that were fitted for destruction by sending them a strong delusion for the purpose that they would believe what is not true. So they would be condemned. We live in a time right now where lies seem to permeate our society. It is virtually impossible anymore to discern what is true and what is a lie. But even obvious lies, even blatant lies are being foisted on us and then As a society, we are being pressured to go along with things that are clearly not true. Here, I'll give you an example. Uh, My son is sitting in the back there. That is not the example of a lie. Uh, My son is sitting in the back there. When he was a teenage boy, I raised both my kids to be polite, to respect adults, and to say, yes or no, ma'am. And sometimes that was surprising to adults. I remember sitting in a a barber shop one time when James was quite young and he was saying, yes or no, sir. The old fellow sitting next to me said, you can't get young people to talk like that anymore. And I said, oh, yeah, you can. You just (laughs) need to teach them. And so he was taught to be polite. Well, there's a pizza parlor here in Smyrna where it's kind of like one of those subway things where you walk in and pick your own crust and pick your own tomato sauce and pick your toppings. And so the first person that we encountered, James and I, as we were getting ready to have our pizza made for us, the first person we encountered was a tall, angular gentleman with a prominent Adam's apple and uh, earrings and long hair and makeup. And that was just confusing. Now, you know, James deals with autism. I will say he is overcoming autism because he's thriving despite his autism. But he's very black and white as a result. Uh, Nuance is not his strong suit. And so the person behind the counter was asking him what he wanted on his pizza and said, do you want this? Do you want that? And James said, yes, sir. sir." Well, this guy was not happy with that. I mean, he had decked himself out. He had dressed up like a woman. He had grown his hair and had lipstick on and was wearing earrings and expected us to respond to him as if he was a woman. Do you know why we couldn't respond to him as if he was a woman? Because he's not. And to respond to him as if he was a woman would be a lie. That's the point of the story. Our society right now is permeated with lies. 
And then they will tell you that you have to go along with the lie. And whatever somebody identifies as, you have to confirm them in that lying identification. I don't agree. I think we as Christians are supposed to stand for truth. The church, after all, is called the ground and pillar of truth. Jesus Christ said that he was the way and the truth and the life. We're supposed to be standing up for what is actually true. We're not supposed to be buying into the lies. Where are these lies coming from? From the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself is, according to Jesus, the father of lies, constantly creating lies and then foisting them on us. And the world most willingly goes along with the lies and then puts pressure on us by saying things like, well, if you don't agree with them in what they identify as, then you're doing them some kind of harm. I grew up, because I'm an old guy, I grew up with sticks and stones will break my bones, words will never hurt me. Jewel was mouthing it along with me. Now we're being told words are violence. So you can't say certain words. You can't tell people that what they are pretending is not true. And they might hurt themselves, they might harm themselves, they might do something if you don't confirm them. That's a lie. All of it is a lie. There is no way that a man is a woman or a woman is a man, chiefly because God himself made them male and female from the very beginning. And even societally, even growing up, there's no way that a man can experience what it is to grow up as a girl, as a woman, and there's no way a woman can know what it is to be a man. But our society is permeated with these types of lies, constant lying. Now, it would be easy in that paradigm it would be easy to say, okay, I get it. Okay, God, he's true. He's all true. He's nothing but truth. And Satan is a liar. And so he's the father of lies. And whenever you see a lie, that's from him. So it's true that he is the one that is the fomenter of lies in the world. But we're going to see Paul here say, God turns people over to that lie to strong delusion so that they will believe what is untrue, what is false, what is a lie for the purpose so that they will be condemned. Now, are you comfortable with a God like that? Because yes. that's the God of the Bible. When we say God is sovereign, oftentimes people think that what we're saying is, well, God's kind of generally in charge of what's going on. But if he's genuinely, truly sovereign, then he has a game plan for absolutely every individual he ever creates. And he is going to guarantee that the outcome of that person falls completely in line with his own goodwill and his own good pleasure and his own determination before the foundation of the world. That's what we're meaning when we say sovereign. 
We mean the God who can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whoever he wants, as many times as he wants, and you can't stop him from doing what he's doing. You can't stop him from being who he's being. You can't stop him from divinely acting on his own goodwill and good pleasure so that everything comes out exactly the way he determined it was going to come out. And that reality comes screaming out of 2 Thessalonians. So, let's read chapter 1, and then we'll go back and dig into the details. Uh, This letter is written quite soon after the first letter. Apparently, Timothy has come back and said, well, they read your first letter, and they're very excited about the parousia of Christ. They're very excited about the return of Christ, There are indications in both letters that they expected Christ to be back very soon, very quickly. In fact, Paul is going to say uh, that some have even stopped working, apparently because they're anticipating the return of Christ so quickly that they've just stopped working. And Paul has to admonish them and say, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, because people were just waiting for Christ to come back. But then in the midst of their waiting for Christ to come back, they were suffering a tremendous amount of persecution. Persecution was just part of the package. You might recall that part of the reason that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a matter of weeks was because he was being chased by the Jews who were following him from city to city, persecuting him and trying to keep this Christian message from spreading. And so there in Thessalonica, you not only had Jews who were countering everything that Paul had to say, everything that Paul had taught, but then they are also a Roman province. And so they are being persecuted by the Romans who don't want this new religion being introduced, a religion that says, no, Caesar is not God, But there is a God, and he is Yahweh, and he is ruling from heaven, and he did send his son, and his son needs to be worshipped, and God needs to be worshipped, but Caesar does not need to be worshipped. Well, Caesar didn't take kindly to that, and so he's trying to crush Christianity as well. So the Thessalonians are undergoing a tremendous amount of pressure and pain, so much so that they have heard Paul talk about this time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. They've heard him say, just like the prophets said, like Daniel said, like Jeremiah said, and then Jesus himself said, this time of trouble is coming, and part of it is the wrath of God, the day of the Lord. Well, it got so bad for the Thessalonians, they seemed to think they were in the day of the Lord. It's like, this never been this bad for us. Oh, this must be that bad that is worse than any bad that's ever been bad on the badness of the history of badness. So this is, this is about as bad as it's going to get. And Paul, again, has to correct them and say, no, no, no. The day of the Lord isn't here yet because certain other things have to happen first. And because you haven't seen those other things happen yet, The day of the Lord isn't here. But, here in chapter 1, he's going to say, but yes, you are suffering a tremendous amount of persecution. And he butts that right up against, but you're doing good. You're doing right. 
You're doing this Christian thing correctly, so much so that I brag about you to other churches. You're doing it so good. So what does that tell us? As a principle, we have to remember that Christianity is always persecuted, and it's so common for us when we suffer difficulties or persecution or hardships, it's so common for us to say, well, then where is God in all this? I must be out of the goodwill of God. I must be out of the good pleasure of God. Otherwise, I wouldn't be suffering this. Paul is going to say, you're doing it right. You're in the blessings of God, and you're being persecuted. And then he's going to say, and that persecution is a sure indication and sign that you are in God. Well, that's really helpful for us. Because when life gets tough, it's good to remember that the reason that we suffer in this world, the reason that we go through the difficulties in this world that separate us from this world is because that is a sure indication that God has chosen us since before the foundation of the world and is separating us during our lifetime, separating us from this world, separating us from our flesh and making us holy and completely his through the things that we endure and the faith that that produces. Got it? it. I'm still introducing. I'm just introducing like mad up here. So. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse one, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and the afflictions which you endure. And this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. 
for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in that chapter, you'll notice that Paul just equated the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the maker of heaven and earth, and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's constantly equating the two of them on purpose because to the Jews who are persecuting him, there is outright denial that Christ is to be worshipped that he is the son of God, or that he is on par with God. So I think this is Paul's way of just sort of poking them with a stick and saying over and over that God and Jesus are equitable. They're on the same level. And that the church, he says in the very first verse, the church, the ecclesia, the outcalled of God, belong not only to God, but they belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know where we get the English word church? I mean, church is the word that we use to translate ecclesia. Ecclesia, ek, out, clauses, called. So the out called ones is translated by the English word church. But even the derivation, if you go and look at the etymology of the word church, the word church itself comes from the word Lord. The word Lord in the Greek is kurios. Those who belong to the Lord are the kuriakon or the kuriakos. And then that word, kuriakon, kuriakos, migrated through the Latin languages into the Celtic languages. And that's where we get the word kirk. Uh, if you've ever heard of the, the wee kirk in the dell, that's a reference to a church. The same way that the hard ch in the Greek became the k in the Celtic languages, it's the same word. So the kuriakon, the ones who belong to the kurios, are identified as the kirke, which then was shortened to the kirk. We just pronounce it here in America with the soft ch, church. So when you say the word church, you're still saying those who belong to the Lord. When you say the Greek word, ekklesia, you're saying the ones who were called out by God since before the foundation of the world. Paul knows that. He doesn't know the word church. It didn't exist in his day. But he knows that he is referred to the saints of God as the ecclesia, as those that God has called out of the world to himself. And then he says that the church of the Thessalonians is in God and in Christ. So that is the identifying mark, the chief characteristic of the outcalled ones, the ones that God is drawing to himself 
He is drawing them because they already belong to him. They are in him. He is in them. We in unity are being called to our collective eternity together. And notice again that Paul says we are in God our Father, but equally we are in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are the Khan. We are those who belong to the Lord. We are the church. But if you are the church, and this is really important, uh, the building is not the church. All the time you'll see buildings and refer to them as the church. That's not the church. Biblically speaking, the church is the people, the outcalled, the ones who belong to Christ. That's who the church is. So, if you are part of the church today, if you are part of the ecclesia today, if you believe in Jesus Christ today, if you worship Christ, if you care about the things of God, if you spend any time at all caring about the things of God, it is because God chose you from the beginning for salvation, is drawing you away from the world and drawing you away from yourself, your flesh, and your own lusts, And he is doing that in accordance with his own good pleasure and his own good will. And I only stress that because I want you to understand what a phenomenal grace of God that is. That he would take the time with everything else he's got to do while he's busy keeping all the world spinning and atoms moving. That he also took the time to choose you to inhabit you, to change you, to turn you, to draw you to himself, and that he has ever loved you, and that is the motivation for why he is doing that. What what an astounding privilege. And then somebody will come and tell you what it costs to be in Christ. What it costs you is... Nothing compared to the astounding privilege of the maker of heaven and earth deciding out of all the billions of people who have ever lived on this planet that he chooses you and that he loves you and that he has guaranteed your eternity for his own glory. What an astounding thing. Okay, well, that was verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the same three that are mentioned in the first letter. Silvanus, who is also known as Silas. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, by the way, is the only way. If you are in God in Christ, only then do you get grace. So in verse 2, he could say grace to you and peace. From the same two, God the Father and the Kurios, your master, Jesus Christ. And then Paul, it's almost like he's musing on the reality of everything that I just tried to explain. Because the first thing he says about them, he says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren. And that is only fitting 
because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another is growing ever greater. So Paul sees in that, in their love for God and in their love for one another, he sees in that the work of God, that God is changing them, conforming them, bringing them to faith, that they do have this heavenly, eternal (coughs) destiny laying out ahead of them. And so Paul does not say, hey, you all, thank you for confirming me. Paul was not from the South, which is why he didn't say y'all. He doesn't say, thank you for confirming me. He says, I thank God for you. I thank God that you are the way you are. I thank God that your love for one another is increasing and that your faith in Jesus Christ, in his finished work, is greatly enlarged, greatly growing And so you are producing all of the necessary indications of what it is to actually be a Christian, and there's no way you could do that if it weren't for the fact that God is working through you. And so Paul, the observer, sees that happening in the church in Thessalonica and says, I thank God that he is increasing your faith, that he is bringing you along in Christ, And that it is demonstrated in the way that you love one another. And we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren. As is only appropriate. As is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we, we ourselves, Timothy, Silas, and me, We speak proudly of you among the churches of God because of your perseverance and your faith in the midst of the persecutions and the afflictions that you endure. So there's no question that they were going through a tremendous amount of persecution. There's no question that they were going through a tremendous amount of affliction. So much so that it's making them wonder whether or not they are under the hand of God's judgment or whether they are in the day of the Lord. But being persecuted for Christianity, it's almost like part of the package. It just makes sense. Christ said, the world is going to hate you. Not because it hates you, but it hates me. And because you're with me, because you're aligned with me, because we are in unity, the world is also going to hate you. And why did they hate Jesus? No reason. No reason. He said, they're going to hate me without a cause. Then he said, they're going to hate you without a cause. And sometimes we suffer that kind of affliction and hatred from the world, the world that doesn't know Christ, the world that hates the reality and the truth of Christ. And so sometimes we are persecuted and afflicted by that world. But the end result of Christians going through difficulty is that our faith is increased. Our confidence in God is increased. Paul says that we go through these kind of afflictions because it builds a sort of triedness in us. Where we understand that God got us through the last thing, so God's probably going to get me through the next thing. 
And whichever of the things he doesn't get me through is going to kill me, and I go home. So I win again. And so you can have confidence and faith even though you are enduring persecution in this world. Now, here's the really important principle that lays at the bottom of all that. For years, I did not understand that principle. And as a consequence, whenever bad things would happen to me, they just seemed pointless. They just seemed purposeless. It just seemed like the randomness of life. Can I get a witness? I mean, sometimes it's like, I'm doing good. I'm doing fine. I'm not doing anybody any harm. And then this happened. Why? Why did this happen? If you've gone through your whole life and have yet to ask why to anything, then just hang on because it's coming. Uh, The stuff that happens in life will cause us to say, why? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Why am I going through this? Once you understand the relationship between the world and an absolutely sovereign God, then you can comprehend that suffering has purpose. And that is so good to know. When you realize that the difficulties of life are those difficulties that God designed for you, for your ultimate good, to build faith and confidence in you, to build you up in your reliance on him, then you can look back on the difficulties and the suffering of your life and you can say, oh, that's why that happened. I can say this for me. I hope it's true of you. Most of the terrible things I've ever suffered in life, I came out better for. The end result was I learned something. (laughs) Too often I learned patience. But I learned something. I learned how to endure. I learned how to suffer. I learned how to maintain faith in the midst of the dark periods. I learned these important lessons that I wouldn't have learned any other way had I not gone through the difficulty. Paul says there's no trial, no temptation, no trouble of this life that you've ever endured except what is common to man. But then he says, but God is faithful. And he will, with that trouble, provide the way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. And once you know that God's got you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of the downfalls of this life, if you understand that this world is not your home, And if you understand that there is a greater eternity ahead for you, and if you understand that nothing has come into your life except what a sovereign God has purposed for your life, then you're going to start looking, instead of looking at the trouble and concentrating on the pain, you're going to start looking for the reason, for the understanding, for the lesson, for the purpose behind it. Because I guarantee you, it always has purpose. Okay, so the church at Thessalonica was undergoing persecutions and afflictions. And they were having to last them out. They were enduring this time of tremendous difficulty. And at the same time that they were going through difficulty, Paul was out there bragging about how good they're doing. 
So there's no conflict between, I'm a Christian, I'm a faithful Christian, I'm doing Christianity the best I know how, and I'm suffering, and I'm struggling, and I'm going through difficulty. The two go together. Paul says, I'm out there complimenting you because you're doing Christianity so well. I see the way that your faith is so greatly enlarged. I see the way that your love for one another is growing ever greater. You're doing great. Keep it up. And we ourselves brag about you. We speak proudly of you among the churches of God because of your perseverance and your faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now he's going to get to the purpose. Verse 5. Because this, this persecution, this affliction, this difficulty you're going through, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Uh, In the Greek, there are several different words that are translated by the English word judgment. And sometimes we miss the nuance of the Greek word because we don't have a multiplicity of English words to utilize. But this word here is krisis. In English letters, it would be K-R-I-S-I-S. It's the word from which we do get crisis. The word here does not mean judgment for the purpose of condemning. That'd be krima, or even kata krima, the ultimate down. This is God judging, determining between one and another. Here, I'll I'll put it this way. Uh, So, Micah, so you married April. So far, I'm right? Okay, good. Why? Why April? There, there were others. There were other. Have you met other women? I didn't love the others. You didn't love the others. You loved her. That was a bit of discernment on your part. There were lots of women. There were apparently options out there, but your discernment led you to pick her. That's Croesus. That is good judgment, and we all agree it was good judgment on your part. Because we all know April, and I think we're all a little surprised. And so, yeah. Anyway, that's Croesus, that ability to discern well, that ability to choose between one and the other. And so that's the way Paul is using the word, and he's going to say, God is making a distinction, a choice between you and them. And that's the reason they persecute you. That's the reason they hate you. It is a sure indication of God's preference toward you. And that's a completely different way to think about persecution and difficulty. That persecution is a sure sign of God's favor toward you in this God-hating world. But that makes sense. If you would just agree with the world and play the world's game and just agree to the lies, and just say what they want you to say, well, then the world's not going to hate you. They're not going to persecute you. What do they care? You're going to go along and get along. It's when you stand up and say, no, that's a lie. There is a truth. 
God is true, Christ is honest, well, then the world is going to hate you because you're this big red flashing neon sign announcing that they are, what's that word? Wrong, that they are wrong and they're going to hate you for that. Well, that's essentially what Paul says here. Verse 5, this persecution that you're enduring is a plain indication of God's righteous discernment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You're suffering because of the kingdom of God. You're suffering because of the righteousness of God. You're suffering because of your faith in Jesus Christ God sees that, God purposes that, and God is utilizing that as a way of proving the distinction between you and the world, because the world hates you. That's brilliant, by the way. Who could come up with something like that? Every other known God of any other respected religion in the history of the world talks about a God who you earn his favor and then he does good for you. This is a much more complicated God. This God of the Bible is much more complex than our human intellect can think about. This is the God who can say things like, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. My thoughts and ways are higher than yours, like the heavens are higher than the earth. I'm so far above you. You don't begin to comprehend me. And then he explains things like this to us. And suddenly, this world makes sense. The difficulty of this world, the suffering of this world, the trials of this world make sense when you understand that it is a plain demonstration, an indication of God's righteous discernment between you and the world so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. There's purpose to the suffering and now he's going to explain what that crisis looks like. What is that ultimate division between you and the world going to look like? Verse 6. For after all, it is only just, it is only right, it is only proper for a holy God to then mete out righteous judgment in favor of his people and against those who are his enemies. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. I'm so in favor of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm lining up with God on that one. Yes, God, those people who hate your word, who hate the church, who hate us, they deserve your punishment. They deserve your correction. In a minute, Paul's going to indicate when that correction is going to happen. Because we get impatient. We want it to happen right away. Now would be good. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That tells you something else really, really important. When you're going through your struggles, your trials, your difficulties, your afflictions, God knows. That's a great comfort to me knowing that he is aware of what I'm going through and that he's the same God who says, 
as your day, so shall your strength be. He's going to give you the exact amount of strength necessary to get you through the day that he has planned for you. That's a God who is completely sovereign, who is going to care for you, who is going to make sure that you're able to endure the things that this life is going to throw at you. And ultimately, because he knows, and because he knows the people who are bringing that affliction, he is ultimately going to afflict those who are afflicting his church, his beloved. He's going to pay them back appropriately. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then as, as concerns you, and to give relief, rest to you who are currently afflicted. And to us as well. Okay, so when is that going to happen? I'm anxious. Let's do it, God. I'm tired. Life beats a man to death. I'm tired. When are you going to finally bring about this balance where I get rest, they get affliction? When? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's the parousia. That's the appearance of Christ. When the appearance of Christ comes, judgment, righteous judgment, holy judgment, appropriate judgment comes with him. And the multiple descriptions that we have read of his return include him having this two-edged sword out of his mouth, having this rod of iron with which he's going to Break the nations like pot shirts. Judgment's coming. And so, we who are here, we who are afflicted, we who are going through these difficulties have to remember that it is a sovereign God who is taking us through it. He's going to give us the strength and the endurance and the wisdom to go through it, understanding that it has point and purpose to it, in league with what a sovereign God has determined, and that he's not going to leave it in that condition. He is ultimately going to mete out appropriate judgment. Those who hate him and hate his church are going to suffer ultimate affliction, and we who are afflicted are going to get rest, eternal rest, a holy rest, a kind of joy and a kind of peace that is beyond our comprehension at this moment because we've never experienced it. We've never had that kind of true, genuine peace of mind. We're still living here in this world where the other shoe is about to drop, where the next bad thing is coming, where no matter how you feel today, just wait. Tomorrow you won't feel so good. Christ is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, that's all judgment language, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That word obey there is a whole lot more than just performance, obedience to some set of rules. It means to actually Conform your life, conform your thinking and your understanding and your worldview 
to the reality of Jesus Christ. Because after all, he is Lord. He is kurios. He is the master. And knowing that about him, you should walk out your life in a way that is obedient to what it is you say you believe. Obedience to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the very thing that the world doesn't have, the very thing that they resist. They resist the gospel of Christ. Have you, and I mean you, when I say you, I'm talking you. Have you, Kenneth, have you ever heard better news than the gospel of grace? The good news of Jesus Christ dying for all your sin, making it okay between you and the God of eternity, the maker of heaven and earth, so that you don't have to be afraid of death because everybody dies. And when you die, you're going to go and stand before God and you're not going to fry and you're going to be accepted in the beloved one. Was there ever better news than that? Yeah, that's great news. Now go try to tell people. They don't want to hear it. They don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. Oftentimes, they hate it. Why? It's the best thing you've ever heard. It's the greatest news ever. People hate it. Well, that is what it is to be disobedient to the gospel. Somebody tells you the gospel, the good news of Christ, and you resist it. You fight against it. You don't adhere to it. That is just disobedience against God and against his son. And as a consequence, when Christ returns with his mighty angels in flaming fire, they are going to deal out retribution to those who, number one, don't even know God, and to those who are disobedient to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is the single most definitive statement that Paul writes anywhere about the eternality of suffering punishment from God. Uh, There is a theology out there, an interpretation of the Bible that says that uh, eternal conscious suffering doesn't exist, that God, being kind, gracious, and loving, would not be able to survive in his universe if he knew that there were people somewhere eternally suffering. And yet, Paul uses language just like the book of Revelation saying that those who end up in the lake of fire, the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever, Well, if the torment lasts forever and ever, then they're conscious forever and ever. I can't begin to imagine an agony like that that lasts forever and ever. Here, Paul says, they are going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of the power of God. First off, we can't imagine the glory of God. None of us can imagine what that's going to be like. What a fine day that's going to be when we get to see the glory of God, the light that he encases himself in, that no man approaches, and then we are called to bow and sing and praise before him in that glory. That's astounding. 
So that exists, and then there are people who are never going to see it. There are people who are never going to encounter it because they hate God, because they hate Christ, because they are disobedient to the gospel, and their penalty for persecuting the church of Jesus Christ is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. By the way, if they are away from the presence of the Lord and they know they are away from the presence of the Lord, that's conscious, eternal conscious destruction from God. Can't fathom it. Okay, so when I say to you things like, run to Christ, I'm not saying go to Christ so you can get a bigger car. I'm not talking about go to Christ in the hope that you can name and claim health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm saying run to Christ because eternal destruction is real. Run to Christ. Verse 10. When he comes, he's going to be glorified in his saints. Oh, good. That's us. When he comes, as we saw in the book of Revelation, the kings of the earth, the mighty men, the strong men are going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth. They're going to say to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us from the glory of that one on the throne. Keep us from him. They're terrified by the return of Christ. But us, the ones who Paul says, but we love his appearing. I can't wait, me personally. I'm anxious for the appearing of Christ when he comes to be glorified in his holy ones, in his saints on that day, that same day, that day of his parousia, that day of his return to be marveled at among all those who have believed. That word marveled means to hold in admiration. When we see him, we're going to admire him. We're going to praise him. We're going to worship him. We're going to love him. We've been waiting all this time. When he comes, we, his saints, the ones who love his appearance, are going to worship him and glorify him and marvel at him because the testimony that Paul gave us, the truth of the gospel, is what we believed. So the difference, the contrast, is between those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who believe and are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ can't wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Those who are disobedient are going to run and hide in fear, in terror, and then they're going to suffer and be away from God eternally and never see his glory. There is so much depth, so much purpose, so many eternal consequences to this faith that if you can believe in God, if you can believe in Christ, it's only because God allowed you to, taught you to, drew you to himself. That is an act of astounding grace. 
It is an amazing privilege. Don't ever take that for granted because this is the same God who's perfectly willing to pour out eternal destruction on his enemies. Don't be his enemy. Instead, be found in Jesus Christ on that great and glorious day when he comes back. And I can't wait. Let's say it as a group. I'm done. Okay. There. I'm done. Good. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.